One writer's voyages in the lands of fiction and memoir. When you're writing fiction and when you're writing a memoir too, I mean, um, it doesn't really matter, nonfiction, fiction, you inevitably come down to that question. Can I really ever know another human being? And can I ever really be known by another human being on the deepest, most intimate level? We remember Russell Banks. He died on January 7th at the age of 82. We last talked with him in 2016, and we re-air that interview today. But first, we talk with Danielle Claude, award-winning natural history writer, about her new book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Twenty nineteen and twenty twenty saw perhaps the worst fire season in Australia yet. The megafires were devastating, not only for human communities, but for Australia's wildlife. The toll was unimaginable. Among its victims were many members of that species of charismatic cuteness, the koala. The flames raged across their native eucalyptus forests, devastating their habitat. Yet koalas are incredibly resilient. During their long presence on planet Earth, they've come through previous eras of climate chaos, rebounding from population crashes to thrive again. It's a fascinating story that holds lessons not only for conservation of the koala, but also for the preservation of other species it shares the planet with, including us. Danielle Claude examines that story in her new book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. She's an award-winning author of numerous nonfiction books, and her writing includes natural history, essays, science writing, historical fiction, and best-selling children's books. Danielle Claude, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you for having me. You know, I've always been fascinated by koalas, although I really didn't know anything about them, and now I know a whole lot more than I than I did before I read your book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Wikipedia says they're vulnerable. Actually, in the book, you say they've gone from vulnerable to maybe somewhere closer to endangered, but they are thriving in some areas while they're endangered in others. So tell us about the current state of koalas. Yeah, well, it is it is really interesting because they're they're classified as endangered now on the east coast of Australia in New South Wales and Queensland because their population is declining really rapidly. And so people are very concerned about why it's why it's declining quite so quickly. Um, they're not endangered as a species because there's quite a thriving population in Victoria and South Australia, which is along the south coast of Australia. So that's a, and in fact, they're, they're so abundant in some places where I live, for example, that they actually risk out uh, over-browsing the trees. So some of the trees have to be protected so they don't get eaten. So um, it's, it's quite an anomaly as to why that's happening. 
and a bit of a mystery. But I guess in both cases, it's got to do with the fragmentation of the forest because we've cleared such large areas of forest. The koalas are now trapped in relatively small pockets. And when they're healthy and abundant, that's not so good for the forest. And when they're declining and a little bit less healthy, that causes problems for their population because there's fewer of them and they, they can't breed and reproduce. You know, I think a lot of people thought about koalas last year, maybe it was the year before, when you had these enormous megafires in Australia, climate-driven megafires, and so many pictures came across the internet of koalas that were terribly burned. Um, Have some of those populations rebounded? Yes, well, those fires were really notable for a range of reasons. They were along the east coast, so they were um, they impacted very heavily on Australia's most populated area, and they were widespread and they burn in areas that don't traditionally burn. Australia is a very fire-prone continent, so fires are a normal part of life for um, Australians in regional areas, but. In those fires, they, they burnt places that had never been burnt before because of the changing climate. So, so that was a real worry. And, of course, with the smaller forests, the koalas are disproportionately impacted because they live in the most flammable trees, the eucalypts. So that, that caused a problem. So they, they haven't really rebounded in those areas, but they, they, they are making a comeback in some places. So another spot that was burnt was Kangaroo Island, which hosted the biggest and probably healthiest population of koalas in Australia. It was established as a wildlife refuge, so they they were put there to to keep them safe. But that whole island, pretty much the, all the national park there was burnt out. So about forty thousand koalas were lost in that fire. But but the remaining ones are coming back, so that they are able to recover, but only if they've got forest to go into. So if all the forest was burned, how are they coming back? Mm, well, that is a problem. So they're. There are some plantations of eucalypts on Kangaroo Island that the, that the koalas are living in, but that, of course, puts them into conflict with the owners of the plantations who want to harvest their trees. So um, it, it's an ongoing problem. Wow. And so emblematic of some of the things that you talk about in this book, Koala. So this is a really ancient species and one that actually has survived many changes in climate. Talk about the early koalas and what their world looked like and, and how their world has changed through the eons. Mm, yeah, so we tend to think of the koala as being one of a kind because we don't have any other species like it. Its nearest living relative is the wombat, which is also a, a slightly odd one of a kind kind of couple of species. But um, in actual fact, in the past, there were lots of different koalas and they were part of a much bigger family. There's been various species of koalas through prehistory and they lived in the the great forests that used to stretch across the inland of Australia when Australia was a lot wetter. They lived predominantly in big swampy forests, so so really wet climate animals. So it's really interesting because we think of koalas today as being a drought-adapted animal, but their history is that they are actually a wet forest animal, so um, they're they're very um, attached to the trees that live in wet areas. And they range from tiny little, probably more possum-like ancestors to um, giant koalas, which were probably three times the size of a modern koala. 
Right, and you went uh, looking for remnant uh, fossils of the giant koala, and uh, I have to say, I, I just it shuddered as I heard about <laughs> the caving, you know, where you wriggled through these tiny spaces for a really long time, and I just thought to myself... I could never do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of an unexpected bit of research. Um, but I had hoped to visit lots of different places in Australia. I thought that, um, you know, with the with the COVID restrictions, I thought, oh, it's lucky I'm working on an Australian animal so I can still do all my research. And then, of course, all the state boundaries closed and we weren't able to travel outside our state. So so I was a bit restricted in the, the location research. But turned out one of the fossil caves is located quite close to where I live and um, so I thought oh I'll go and have a look at that but it did turn out to be um, a slightly more challenging activity than I expected I'm, I'm not really keen on small places so caving was a was a whole new thing for me for sure once I was in I thought I just got to keep going until I get out the other side but um, yeah it, it, it certainly wasn't what I was expecting at all but um, it was it gave me a whole new appreciation for those people who do go caving who find a lot of the fossils that we wouldn't otherwise know about unless these people went exploring on the weekend and diving down these tiny little holes and it was certainly the last place I expected to to find koala fossils to down the bottom of a cave. And you did find them? Well, not not precisely. The actual fossil location is, um, I think, what I say, it's a two or three hours caving in, and then another two or three hours caving out. And it's a, it's for experienced cavers. So, I was only able to to get a feel for what the environment was like, not not actually get to where they were. Fortunately, they've already got some of the fossils out, so I was able to see the fossils. Now, as you mentioned before, they subsist on eucalypts and different kinds of eucalyptus trees. And they subsist solely on, not just solely on eucalyptus trees, but different populations subsist on precisely different kinds of eucalyptus trees. That's right. They're really interesting. Um, they've got an amazing adapt adaptation to the eucalyptus forests. And we, you know, we tend to think of them as being highly specialized because they only eat eucalypts. But eucalypts, there's 900 species of eucalypts in Australia. So, and koalas are adapted to a whole wide range of them. So, they're, they're really quite incredible. So, and because the forests are different in different places, koalas have to have very specific adaptations to the particular trees they eat. Um, eucalypts, as, as we know, are really quite toxic. They have a lot of toxins, they're hard to digest. So, the koalas, um, a digestive system is adapted to processing the particular toxins of the particular trees that they they feed on, which is really remarkable. Yeah, it really is. You say they have a, a remarkable micro, a gut microbiome. Yes, I, I guess that's one of those things that we've learned a lot more about in recent years. People pay a lot more attention to their gut biome than than we ever used to, and koalas are a great model for for understanding how that works and and they they can't actually like most animals that most mammals can't digest cellulose and those really difficult plant materials the things that that um, they need to break down to eat grass and leaves and things so they have to have bacteria in their stomach to do that um, and the koala has a very particular 
range of bacteria that break down the cellulose and lignin in eucalypt leaves but it also has to deal with the toxins and that's done by having a supercharged liver so koalas have a very big and complex liver and it's it's so efficient just to give you an example of how efficient their liver is at removing toxins it's also really efficient at removing drugs and medicines from their system so if we were treating a human for chlamydia for example it would take a three-day dose to to cure that in a person and it takes a 30-day dose to cure a koala of chlamydia. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because chlamydia, it turns out, is really uh, is is taking out a lot, something like 50% of koalas are infected with it and it is not a nice experience for them. No, it's a really horrible disease. It, it has terrible terrible symptoms and it causes the animals to be in a lot of pain um, and it just gets gradually worse and worse and it also makes them in, it makes them infertile so they they can't breed but even before it makes them infertile then of course it's a sexually transmitted disease so it gets passed on to the offspring as well when they're born so so it's a really horrible condition but only some populations seem to be affected by it. So the, the East Coast koalas suffer from it really badly. There's less chlamydia in the, in the southern populations. And even where it's present, they don't seem to suffer the same symptoms. And I think that's one of those things when you've got a, a big healthy population that's well fed and that the habitat's good for them, they can cope with some of these diseases. But once they're under stress from other things like changing climate and reduced forests and you know, lots of predators or development and things like that, that makes them vulnerable to the, to the diseases. And, and then, of course, there's also the impact of retroviruses on the East Coast, which are spreading south. Um, and that's an AIDS-like uh, disease, which compromises their immune system and makes them more vulnerable to other diseases. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. I'm talking with Australian author Danielle Claude about her book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. It seems there, there is so much that is being thrown at these cute little creatures. You know, it, it, I understand your title there, The Uncertain Future. This is really a story of terrible depredations and destruction followed by Massive efforts to restore and correct. You know, I'm thinking of the terrible toll that was wreaked by the white colonists on the whole land of Australia, its first peoples, many, many other species. And you're really looking at this history through the lens of koalas. Talk about, you know, kind of this ebb and flow of destruction and restoration, destruction and restoration. Mm, yeah, koalas are a really good good example of that. And I think it's also testament to their resilience that um, they seem to be able to bounce back from from everything we throw at them. I mean, I, I guess the most that they've survived um, near extinction events before through climate change. Um, the, the the last ice age, which you know wiped out a lot of the megafauna, um, koalas went through a population bottleneck then and came back, but more recently, um, hunting for fur, um, there were millions of koalas that were, were killed and sent overseas for the fur trade, um, which is it's quite astonishing how many was, were sent. 
and and that didn't stop until the early 1900s and and they have come back from some of those so in victoria this one of the southern states they were declared virtually extinct there are only a few hundred thought to still survive in the wild and that population has now bounced back. So a, a handful of koalas were put on an island to keep them safe from bushfires and, and predators and um, other things. And that population boomed. It, it did extremely well, so much so they had to move the koalas off. So, so progressively that population has been spread back through Victoria and into South Australia and now constitutes the bulk of the koala population in Australia, which is a remarkable rewilding effort, really. So, so we do see this ebb and flow, and, and koalas are really adapted to that. They're a bit of a boom and bust species, I think, by nature, probably because of Australia's unpredictable and oscillating climate. Um, so when conditions are good, they boom, and when conditions are bad, they disappear. You say, in fact, that some of the restoration is regarded by some people as an environmental catastrophe. Why is that? Yeah, it's tricky. There's always a bit of a debate. I guess Australia, because it was, you know, relatively recently colonised, we kind of have a line in the sand about what's natural and what's not. (laughs) So if koalas weren't in an area at the time of colonisation, they're not regarded as native. So in South Australia, where I live, for example, there were no koalas here when Europeans arrived in in the Adelaide Hills. There, There were koalas further south, but not in this area. And now we have them. But, I mean, taking a slightly longer view, um, if we look at the the fossil history, koalas were here in the past, probably maybe as recently as 7,000 years ago, which from a biological point of view, it's still part of their native habitat. So whether you regard them as native or not is a debatable issue, I guess. They go pretty far back in Australia. They do, they do. I I think that's the thing. We've got a very short-term view. Um, and we need to take a slightly longer term view. Um, they probably disappeared from this area because the forest retreated and they they were cut off, so so they weren't able to stay in this area. But it's a perfectly normal habitat for them to be in, and they're, they're per- everything's perfectly well adapted to their presence. But of course, because it's a small area, we do have that problem with periodic overbrowsing of trees, and and that's what often causes people to to not want them to be in that area. Now, coming back to the fires, um, you know, eucalyptus trees are fire adapted, although they're really overwhelmed by these mega fires. Habitat really is the operative word here. You know, you make the point after the fires that a lot of money flooded into the rehabilitation of koalas and the restoration of habitat that was burned by fires but that not a lot of money goes to protecting the habitat that we are just mowing down willy-nilly in the first place. Yeah, I think a habitat is the key to, to koalas ultimately. I guess it's a, I've been working in conservation biology for decades and it puzzles me that we haven't, that we've, we've sort of gone backwards in a lot of these areas. You know, when I first was a graduate straight out of university we all knew that native vegetation had to be protected it in theory it is protected you're not supposed to remove any native vegetation anymore the remnant vegetation but there are so many loopholes and gaps and exemptions um, so agriculture is exempted mining's exempted forestry is exempted so the major the major industries involved in land clearance are still able to clear areas so it, which just seems crazy um, 
So we're not protecting our, the existing forests. And also from a conservation point of view, we actually need to be restoring and expanding the forests. We need to be replanting the forests. So a lot of our species are going to go extinct unless we can expand that habitat. And bird species are a classic in that case. A lot of our bird species are going to disappear. They're surviving because they're long-lived species, but they're not going to be viable long-term unless we can increase the area of coverage. Is Australia a member of the World Biodiversity Agreement? I would assume so. Um, we ge- we generally have, like most countries um, and places, we have pretty good conservation rules and regulations, but like everywhere else, it's implementation that's the problem. So we can have all the national parks, we can have all the legislation, but if you're not actually upholding that legislation and making sure it's being um, implemented and correctly managed, then those areas are not going to be performing the way they need to. So we need to be looking at um, the actual on-the-ground activity and what's happening in those areas to see that the conservation is is being achieved. So uh, at the moment, we're doing better on paper than we are in practice. And I, and I think that's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But the reason I asked that was because of the recent Montreal Agreement uh, of the World Biodiversity uh, Conference, and they pledged to maintain 30% of the world's wild places for wildlife, 30% by 2030. Did you follow that? And, And what do you think of that amount? And do you even think that's even achievable? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I can't say I've followed that precisely. Um, so I'm not sure what the status is in relation to Australia. We have had a recent change of government, which has given us a lot more hope that environmental concerns will be um, taken seriously. But we still have a lot of very powerful lobby groups who, you know, work quite hard to continue exploiting um, the free resources they get out of our natural assets so that's that's continues to be a big problem for us in Australia we, we have a lot of industries that are really not viable forestry for example native forest logging has been known for decades to be not a viable industry and yet we continue to to subsidize it and support it which is I think is quite remarkable so instead of transitioning to plantation forests so you know there's a few quite fundamental problems there 30 percent does sound to is a generally fairly widespread goal and I know that's what we need to achieve in my own local area we have only 10% of native vegetation remaining and and that is well protected here um, in this state but we do need to increase that area to 30% but I don't know how we're going to achieve that that's a that's a very big ask. Daniel Claude in the in this book Koala at the end you Paint a picture of a perfect world for the koala. Give us a sense of what that world looks like. I guess this is is an activity I try to encourage people to think about because we get so accustomed to the world we live in, we forget how much we've changed it. So whenever I'm driving and I see old remnant trees, um, I try and imagine what what would this whole area have been like before? when this was a forest of those trees instead of them just being lone trees in the middle of an empty paddock. Um, and and I, it's a really, really hard thing to think of, just imagining whole areas of landscape completely forested or completely covered in whatever the 
previous native vegetation was. And that it helps you to think about how those species are adapted and what they needed to, what they need to thrive. Um, and of course, we can't go back to that. We, can, we can't achieve that, but it at least helps you to think about what we need to be aspiring or moving towards an, on a smaller scale. So, so that's why I, I put that in there. Even though I know it's not an achievable goal, I think it's a it's a it's about resetting your baselines and understanding this is what the baseline was. This is where we are, and this is why we need to move a little bit back towards that. Even though we can't get anywhere near it. How do the conservation biologists you talk with deal with the uncertain future for the koala, as well as for so many of the other? species on this planet i mean we're in the midst of the sixth extinction yeah yeah it's it's a terribly difficult field to to work in and and i feel very sorry for the for the biologists working in the field i mean i'm mostly just writing about these things but to see these processes in action and to have been telling people for so long how important this is and not to have been listened to is is really frustrating I, i find it incredibly sad when I was a graduate, I, you know, I thought this was the most important job to do in the world. And yet when I got out into the world, I realised there were no jobs. You know, for, There were very few jobs for conservationists and conservation biologists and environmental managers. And there's even fewer now, I think. So if we're not putting the funds into restoring and caring for our environment, it's not going to happen. So, so we need to find a way of, of changing the economies of how we manage our planet so that these resources are protected and the money comes not from exploiting them but from sustaining them. I could not agree more. And this is just a very entertaining book and filled with all kinds of interesting things about the koala, koala, a natural history and an uncertain future. Danielle Claude, thank you so much for talking with us here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next up, we remember America's great novelist of the working class, Russell Banks. Don't go away. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like book recommendations and extended interviews. I was saddened to hear that Russell Banks passed away last week. When I first came upon his novels, I think The Sweet Hereafter was the first, I was struck that he delved so sensitively into the lives of the working class— a demographic that is all too often overlooked in the catalogs of the major publishing houses. Later, I had the privilege to interview him about his novels Reserve and Lost Memory of Skin, his collection of short stories, A Permanent Member of the Family, and finally his memoir Voyager. In memory of his passing, let's listen to my conversation with Russell Banks about that memoir. We'll start with the intro to that interview. Russell Banks is one of America's greatest living writers. Joyce Carol Oates called him a writer in the grand tradition. Best known for his novels like Affliction and the Sweet Hereafter, his latest book is a work of nonfiction, Voyager. It mixes deeply personal memoir with travel essays spanning his journeys to the Caribbean islands of the Antilles, to Alaska and Florida, 
to the Himalayas. In each of these remarkable essays, Banks considers his life and the world. In Everglades National Park, this perfect place to time travel, as he calls it, he traces his own timeline, seeing more and more of his past selves each time he returns. Recalling his trips to the Caribbean in the title essay, Voyager, Banks dissects his relationships with the four women who would become his wives. In the Himalayas, he embarks on a different quest of self-discovery, challenging the limits of his endurance. I sat down with Russell Banks in June to discuss his relationship to writing, to exploration, and to the women in his life. Well, Russell Banks, welcome to Writer's Voice. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. This was a terrific book, Voyager, uh, Travel Writings. It's really both a memoir and a travel book. You call it a kind of double helix. Say what you mean by that. Well, the two genres, really, travel writing and um, uh, and memoir, are are wound around each other. And um, in in the travel um, reflection and memory, uh, uh, reevaluation of my life and so forth keeps coming up. And I think they create together the essays a kind of narrative. It's not novelistic, really, but there is a kind of recurrence of themes and issues and questions and mysteries that keep returning, even though the locales vary dramatically. I mean, from South Florida to the Seychelles Islands in the Indian Ocean to the Himalayas to Scotland and Alaska and so on. Um, Still, it's the same narrator um, with, I hope, a distinctive and recognizable narrative voice as if it were in narrating a novel. And he's going back and forth with regard to his own life and trying to place it into the context of his travels. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, they are woven together, even though originally these essays were written um, as travel essays, but they were more than revised. And in fact, they were pretty much rewritten. For example, one of them, the the longest one, that's half the book, uh, practically the title essay, Voyager, was originally about 30 pages, and now it's 120-something pages. So in order to make the rest of the um, essays kind of come together in a narrative form. And it's a very powerful essay. Um, you know, I found it's, it's one that really develops this theme of marriage, um, of intimacy, of secrets that are revealed... And it's carried out really on two levels, two planes, naturally. One is, of course, your travels throughout the Caribbean, the voyage and the Caribbean islands of the Antilles. But the other is the voyage through your marital history. Um, and you were recounting this history to the woman who became your fourth wife. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, the first sentence sort of gives it away. It says that a man who has been married four times has a lot of explaining to do. And so that's really the job of this, of this long essay in some sense. But the format is, uh, is that in courting the woman who uh, would become my, th- my fourth wife, I have to uh, describe what happened to the other three. And, and so that's the sort of the setup, as it were. And, um, and one has to do that anyhow. I mean, it's, it's a perfectly uh, realistic um, uh, premise, I think, um, if you're... Uh, trying to convince someone that it's a good idea to marry you and you, and you have a lot of mileage 
as I did, uh, you need to explain how you acquired that mileage. And, and, um, and so that's really the task uh, of the narrator, of me and as the writer, um, and of this man who is courting this uh, slightly skeptical woman. I mean, she has her own character uh, in, the, in the course of this uh, essay where she questions and raises questions every now and then and says, are you talking about your father or are you talking about yourself? Are you talking about, you know, you or are you talking about her? You know, who, who did this? Who did that? It's a, uh, an interrogation in a way, uh, implied interrogation anyhow. And your father, um, who does, he, he doesn't figure in, in quantity in a large way, but certainly in quality he does. Talk about why she would be confused between yeah. you and your father in this. Yeah, because I, I reveal uh, from early on what I was doing at the age of 19, 20 years old, 22 years old, was trying to avoid becoming my father. And unconsciously uh, replicating uh, him in so many ways. And uh, as I described my behavior um, at that age and everything, um, I was simultaneously saying that uh, I was uh, doing everything I could or thought I could uh, do in order not to replicate the kind of marriage my parents had had, which was marred by alcoholism and violence and um, serial adultery and so forth, and abandonment. Um, and, uh, and yet here I was, despite all, um, and despite those intentions, nonetheless re replicating uh, much of my father's behavior at that age. Not really in terms of violence, but no. yes, in terms of drinking, and also mm -hmm. in a more, um, in maybe a more unusual way, in your relationship to your mother, what were you mm. trying to do to correct mm. uh, about your relationship with your mother with the women that you were involved with, the first three wives? Mm. Well, I don't think I had a vocabulary for it at the time and uh, or real conscious uh, knowledge of it, but I think I was trying to find someone who was as much as possible unlike my mother, and, um, and yet I kept falling in love with women who... Uh, while superficially unlike my, were unlike my mother, on a deep level were very much like her. And I was repeating that kind of uh, compulsive repetition of, of, uh, of behavior that, uh, that I think many people fall into, especially if they're, they're, they're coming out of a childhood that was marred or characterized by, um, by, these, by divorce and, and, and abandonment and so forth. Um, you end up uh, going there despite yourself. And in that case, and with regard to my mother, um, I was, uh, without knowing it, I had been raised uh, to be the son of, uh, of a particular type of woman, to make her happy uh, and to please her. Uh, and so I found women who, um, I fell in love with women who made me feel the same way, as though I were able to please them and, and, and as though I were the center of their universe. And um, uh, only gradually did I begin to realize that I was, you know, doing this in, in kind of a compulsive way. And yet you, you do talk about it as something you were trying to get right mm. over and over again. How, what was the impact of this telling of your previous, the story of your previous mm. marriages to your future wife? How... How, what impact did that have on your own psychological process mm. 
Did it prepare you for your new marriage? That's an interesting question, and I, I, I'm not sure I could answer it. Um, before I was able to write this book, um, I think back then I, I was just doing what seemed to come naturally to me at that time. Uh, but uh, this was the first time I had ever been in love with a woman who didn't need me, and um, and and that was uh, a challenging in ways that I had never been challenged before. And uh, I might add that I since then have been married now 27 years to the same woman, and, and uh, it seems to have worked. Uh, whatever uh, took place over in that long trip uh, through the, the Caribbean in 1988. Um, but I wasn't uh, uh, changed by the process, I don't think. I think I probably had changed in small increments leading up to that point over the years and was finally, in a way, emotionally mature um, in a way that I had never been before um, and was able, therefore, to act on that and, and yeah, and to, tell, to see the truth, first of all the truth of my own experience, the nature of my own experience, um, especially with regard to women, and then to be able to say the truth. Um, and, um, and then when it came time to, many years later, to try to write about it, um, I, I think I could do it because I had already lived it to some large degree even if I hadn't at the time been completely aware of it. The writing about it made me much more aware of it, of course, of this shift of consciousness, shift of, of understanding, uh, greater clarity um, into my own personality, past, and, and um, needs. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Russell Banks about his new collection of travel essays, Voyager. It's a deeply personal mix, exploring both the external and internal journeys he's traversed in his 77 years. As a writer, one is, one has to find one's voice, which takes uh, a lot of courage and confidence, I think, in one's own identity. And yet, if in one's marriage one is always trying to please someone else, then there is a certain submersion of one's identity. I wonder if you could talk about the interrelationship, you know, you're writing the history of your marriage and the whole way in which you've honed your, your identity through mm. that. Well, that's, that's a toughie, <laughs> that's a complicated question to address. I do know this, uh, and I've said it before in different ways, uh, that, that writing probably saved my life and made me a useful human being as well uh, because it, it uh, required of me um, a kind of um, rigor and discipline. Uh, it obliged me to be um, smarter than I am most of the time and to be more honest than I am most of the time and to be um, more um, open and aware than I am most of the time when I'm, you know, I'm usually not that smart and I'm not that honest and I'm not that open and aware uh, the rest of the time. So writing provided me with that kind of discipline, order, rigor um, from the beginning. And um, many things could have done that. I mean, I... Uh, there are many professions, many many activities uh, that require that same thing: honesty and um, intelligence and decency. Um, 
but also so does um, so does a marriage uh, require that, and uh, and so I think they are related in that sense as you raise the two together. Question with regard to the two together, and um, and I think that it wasn't really until I was a mature man. I, you know, I was 47 when uh, Chase and I got together, and um, that's a little late, I suppose, to for the lights to go on. But um, but sometimes the lights never go on, so <laughs> you better be grateful when they do. Um, but I know that by that age, I ha I had a kind of maturity and um, clarity that I did not have when I was younger. And I wonder, you know, the question makes me wonder, but I, I, I wonder anyhow, um, if it wasn't the writing, the process uh, itself that, uh, that gave me that uh, maturity, because uh, it required it. Uh, you go back to what you said about the, the voice, um, and, and uh, you were right, it takes a long time usually to have the confidence and the, um, emotional clarity and, and um, intellectual um, trust in a way uh, to, um, to be able to have a, a reliable, trustworthy voice uh, in the narrative. Um, and, um, and that's the same, same thing that's required, as I say, in a marriage too. I was struck by a phrase that I came across in the essay Voyager, in your book Voyager, Russell Banks, you say that unlike fantasies, secrets don't lie, but sometimes memory does lie. Um, so tell us a little bit about the context of, of this thought. Well, uh, um, yeah, I was think I was talking about the burden of courting um, someone and, and, um, and that there was a distinction to be made here uh, between um, um, the revelation of secrets and the revelation of fantasies, um, that um, fantasies were essentially, on some level, um, they're lies. They're lies about the world. Um, there's no attempt to, um, to validate a fantasy by checking it against reality. Um, that's the nature of, of a fantasy. Uh, it's, it's an escape from reality. Um, an avoidance of reality, whereas secrets, you know, when you deal with secrets, you're dealing with uh, a reality you may not want to deal with, you may not like, because it doesn't pass, the, because it's, a, it's, 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 it's rubbing up against reality, it's an unavoidable, inescapable uh, reality. And I think that I was talking at that point about the need in this instance particularly to make that distinction and to be sure that what I was dealing with was secrets, not fantasies. Yeah, and yet you were also doing this on a voyage through these aisles that are so much the subject of fantasies. I right. mean, fantasies that are in some way are killing the right. very, exactly. <laughs> killing the host. Yeah, that keeps coming back to, to, uh, to the narrative, uh, the, the the dreaming up of the, the Caribbean. I think that phrase appears several times, uh, how, how we in the northern um, climates and European and North American uh, worlds have um, have dreamed up the Caribbean in, in a way and have ignored our, um, the reality of the place. And that's why I come back to those uh, restored plantation houses and so forth where the history of slavery has been erased. And um, it's a sort of a gone with the wind fantasy about uh, about that whole you know, 400-year aspect of, of the history of the place. Um, and, and 
th that's an important uh, point in, first of all, in the personal life of the narrator of, of the character uh, named Russell Banks. And, and uh, uh, it's also a, a real point about uh, his, in this essay, but also in elsewhere in the book too, but in particular here, um, the relation we tend to bear and are encouraged to take toward, um, toward the, the Caribbean. Um, it's what's advertised, really. It's how it's promoted, come back to Jamaica and all. Um, in every um, television ad, every newspaper insert and so forth, that's the, that's the whole idea, is to, is to create and sustain and feed a fantasy about this place, which for the people who live there is not a dreamland. It's a real place a, with grinding poverty and uh, with closed down futures for their children and uh, with oppression and corruption and, and so on. And, and this account of the, these, this travel through the Caribbean really, I hope, points to that um, uh, again and again and, and, and contrasts the reality against the, the dreamed-up fantasy. And there's also the ecological impact of tourism. Yeah, that... Um, that runs through the entire book, really, I think, but it's especially true with, the, with regard to the Caribbean and, and the cost uh, to the environment of, um, you know, mainly of these cruise ships, too, and, and uh, carrying 4,000 people on a crew of 2,000 into a small little village, you know, a seaside village, and everybody disembarking. And, and I mean, the impact of that is like an invading, that of an invading army. And you see it over and over again. Um, and... I mean, some of these observations were made back in the 1980s, and so it's only 10 times worse today than it was then. And yet you did find some places, small villages that lived as they did before. Talk yeah. a little bit about yeah, there that. There were a couple of islands that still were managed somehow, inadvertently perhaps, uh, to have escaped the tourist trap. Um, and um, there was a, an Contrasts, especially say on Saint Martin, which is uh, the French side versus Saint Martin, the Dutch side, and the Dutch side had been turned into a casino essentially, and there was still on the French side something that was wholesome and authentic and had left over from uh, a previous era. And then the island of Seba, which um, had never had the plantation, the history of, of, of sugar and, and sugar plantation, largely because there wasn't any flat land on the island and, and uh, it was all mountain. Uh, and that uh, too had escaped both, and there were no white sandy beaches. And so by the absence of the white sandy beaches and the absence of slavery, it was, uh, it was idyllic really. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and no tourists wanted to go there, you know. So there were little spots like that, that by accident managed to escape history. And you could have your Caribbean fantasy. Yeah, then you could have it, right. And in fact, the, I did. I mean, I, I recount having a sudden fantasy in Saber that, oh boy, this is, this is perfect. I can, I can get a little guest house and then I can learn how to cook Creole and I can <laughs> just run a little B&B &B here and once a week the plane will come over with the New York Times and so forth. Uh, that, that crashes too. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voice, and we're talking with a great American writer, Russell Banks, about his latest book, Voyager. Now, you say that the trip was both a compulsion and willed, uh, a willed return trip that confused you by the conflicted emotions it evoked. 
Yes, I had lived in Jamaica before in the 1970s, and and um, and that was where my second marriage kind of fell apart, and um, and I had realized afterwards that there was, you know, it was an unhappy time in some ways, and uh, even though it was an exhilarating time, um, and in many ways enlightening for me, um, but it was also very painful, and um, yet I knew I didn't really understand the ground, uh, why the ground fell out from under that marriage um, there, or at all for that matter, and um, so by returning to that place, to the Caribbean in general, and to Jamaica in particular, because the journey more or less ends at Jamaica, um, I was returning to the wound, as it were, and um, and I knew that, uh, but I wanted to. Uh, as you say, it was willed. Uh, I was offered the opportunity to make this journey by a magazine, but uh, it became much more very quickly than just that. And, uh, and I'm, under the circumstances, uh, because I was traveling with... Uh, Chase, whom I was courting at the time, uh, then I, I, I really needed to, um, you know, I had a double impulse. One was like, I don't really want to go there, um, and the other was, I better go there. I have to go there. And you say that Chase, you know, uh, was skeptical to a certain degree. Um, how did she react to the revelations of maybe the you know, the the more difficult or, or the, the part of that had been your fault in previous ma- marriages and how you you treated your wives? Well, she married me. <laughs> right, but right then. <laughs> in other words, yeah. what, what led from her skepticism to her acceptance? Well, I think that uh, trust and my own honesty. Um, I was being honest about... Um, Events and um, behavior that um, that I could have hidden, uh, I could have sugarcoated, um, I could have avoided, um, and um, and so I think that that probably reassured her uh, paradoxically, and rather than threatened her, and uh, you know, and she's a she's a brave and, and independent woman, and uh, I, I don't think she's easily threatened. Um, Although she, at that time, had never been married before. She had managed to get to the uh, age of when she was 37 at the time uh, without having uh, made the mistake of marrying badly. (laughs) Now, in 2003, you went to another Caribbean island, a very different one, Cuba. You interviewed Fidel. And uh, so tell us about that. How, How was Fidel? He was then very healthy uh, and and very much in charge. Um, in fact, right after we left, uh, I think within a week or so, he uh, imprisoned some 12 journalists and and, uh, and then another 20 dissidents. Uh, so he was he was controlling the situation there and the, uh, to an extraordinary degree. Um, and I was there by a little bit by accident. I went with William Kennedy, the novelist, uh, uh, dear friend, and. Um, we went at the invitation of the um, of uh, a literary festival that they were holding um, in Havana um, of Latin American writers, um, Central and South American writers, and they invited um, Kennedy and me to go because we had each allowed them to translate one of our books um, into Spanish and distribute in Cuba, which most American writers 
wouldn't do or couldn't do uh, up to that point. Um, but we didn't care. We knew we'd never see a penny of it, but they promised to distribute it to every high school in the country and to sell it for the equivalent of a dollar, so that seemed worth it. <laughs> and so they were grateful and invited us to come down and, and put us up. And what happened was, um, it was the month before, it was 2003, the month before the invasion of Iraq, and Fidel was obsessed with that, and he couldn't, he didn't seem to believe that the Americans were crazy enough to invade Iraq. Um, and I think he also saw and knew uh, through his own people that Kennedy and I were somewhat left-leaning, sympathetic kind of, of writers who might be able to put a puff piece or something for him into the New York Times Magazine or the Washington Post. So he was, he was trying to use us. And so he invited us the next day after a big welcoming banquet to come to his office and, and, um, and talk with him. Um, which we did. But what was supposed to be a short uh, luncheon interview turned into a um, nine-hour uh, marathon, which I guess things happen like that with him frequently. And, uh, and it was extraordinary because after, you know, maybe 20 minutes or so of chit-chat, he said, okay, now we're all friends. You can ask me anything you want. You can't um, record it, but, and you can make notes if you like. And, uh, and Kennedy, who's an old journalist and very experienced at this, and I just started to um, to go. And you'd ask a question, and he would respond with a speech. Um, but even that was fascinating. Um, and it got down to one point. I, I asked him. I said, "After all the 47 years, um, is there anything you regret?" And he immediately said, yes, I never should have trusted the Russians, which I thought was a wonderful confession at that time. And the other uh, answer, he said uh, two things. He said, and the other one was that um, uh, I thought the revolution would eliminate racism, but it didn't. Hmm. He said, so we're taking, <laughs> we're taking a hint from you Americans. We're introducing affirmative action here. <laughs> and this was right at the time when there was a University of Michigan suit being played out against affirmative action. And I knew he <laughs> reads the papers, and I knew he was just jabbing me a little bit as an American. <laughs> but it was, a, it, was a, it was a fascinating event. I'm really, really glad I had this op that opportunity. And then the next day, he sent us off to his little secret hideaway. And, the Bay of Pigs, and um, continue, we continued our, our Cuban adventure. I was just there again in, in December this year, 2015, because I really, that was the, 2003 was the last time before um, December this year, and because I wanted to see, compare the, the difference between Cuba then and Cuba now, and it was extraordinary difference. It was, it was, it had gone from a country that seemed where everyone acted as though they had no future. Um, there was a kind of pessimism and bleak uh, depression with everyone practically that you spoke with in 2003. Um, and, but uh, it was replaced entirely by, or seemingly uh, entirely, by uh, optimism, by a belief in the future that things were going to get better for their kids than they were now. And, and their grandkids, that the future held something for them. It was a really remarkable shift in just that period. And I know it had everything to do with Obama's opening it up, mm -hmm. of course. Well, so I'd just like to ask you as a last question, with all the intimacy of this book, um, do you still feel, as you say in the book, that it's impossible to ever be truly known uh, and never actually n know another? 
You know, I come up against that in, uh, in my writing fiction, in my novels and short stories, and I came up against that question here. It's, it's for, my, for me, it's been a burning question, really, all my life. Um, and, and I don't want to have to answer it the way I inevitably come down on it. Um, and when you're writing fiction, and when you're writing a memoir, too, I mean, um, it doesn't really matter, nonfiction, fiction, you inevitably come down to that question. Can I really ever know another human being? And can I ever really be known by another human being on the deepest, most intimate level? And, and I always come away saying, no, I don't. There is a kind of permanent solitude. We are born alone and we die alone. And, um, and I can't get around that. I'd love to get around it. Um, but um, but I, when, I have to, when, I, when I have to tell the truth, uh, I, I can't get around it. Do you feel that way about your characters? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, that's, that's what, I, what I kind of mean is that when I get down to it in a novel, I get as close as I can and as, as, as much inside the character as I can. And um, maybe that is the only way I can get to know someone um, uh, on that intimate uh, level, uh, that fuller level, uh, is by fictionalizing them, you know. And that, that really isn't getting to know another person. That's, in a sense, getting to know myself better, you know. So would you say then that memoir and fiction, in a way, have the same purpose? I think they do, and I think they, they function very much the same way when we read them. Um, um, we're taken inside a life other than our own um, and, uh, and given access to as much uh, as the writer is able to make available. Um, and, uh, and we come away with deeper knowledge, certainly, of both another human being, but in the process, deeper knowledge of ourself. That engagement is what gives us knowledge of ourself. Um, the, it's almost like a dialectical uh, back and forth. Uh, I know that I know myself better for having read Madame Bovary, mm. <laughs> for instance. Well, that's wonderful. This is just a terrific book, Voyager, Travel Writings, Russell Banks. So. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's been great to talk to you. That was Russell Banks talking with us in 2016 about his memoir, Voyager. Go to writersvoice.net to hear all our interviews with the great novelist of America's working class who died January 7th. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon.